If you haven't listened to part one on terrorism, please listen to it before this episode. It gives a very important context. In addition, you could also check out our Illuminati episode. It helps explain how conspiracy theories embolden violent actions from certain individuals. Thanks. And now here's part two of terrorism. On this season, we'll be exploring our bizarre beliefs, unfounded fears, and fantastical thinking, how they shape our psychology and culture, and how much of our past we can find in the present. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. I think there's blame on both sides, and I have no doubt about it, and you don't have any doubt about it either. In part one of this two-part series, we explored a partial history of domestic terrorism, both from the far right and from the far left. We started with the slave revolts and abolitionist actions of the 1700s in response to the institution of slavery. And then we moved on to the Ku Klux Klan's strange beginnings in the late 1800s, as well as their rebranding in the 1920s due to a smash hit box office favorite, Birth of a Nation, that presented the Ku Klux Klan as heroes. Then we followed the KKK up through desegregation and saw the violence that the far right was willing to commit to prevent black kids from entering white schools. And then came the late 1960s and early 70s, where we took a look at the Black Panther Party, an armed group of black people fighting against police brutality and inequality while creating free breakfast programs for impoverished kids. Then we looked at their sometimes allies, the Weather Underground, made up of mostly middle and upper class college students who bombed federal and state buildings. For this episode, I'll use this historical context to explore our modern iterations of the far left and the far right, as well as the government's familiar reactions to both. I had one listener reach out after part one, concerned that I was making a false equivalency between the far left and the far right, and I hope to clear up my feelings on that today. So let's take a look at this false equivalency together. Let's take a look at movements considered extremist on both the left and the right and really explore what they're actually fighting for as they battle like they always have in our dark American streets. Black billow, smoke billowing from the federal court building downtown, and this debris, glass, uh, building matter spread on several downtown blocks. Come the mid-1990s, Oklahoma bomber Timothy McVeigh, who we talked about in our Illuminati episode, planted several bombs beside a federal building, killing 168 people, including children in a daycare that was inside of one of the blast sites. 
Like many of the members of the right-wing militia movements of the Clinton era, McVeigh was partially inspired by a novel called The Turner Diaries, a story not unlike Birth of a Nation. Why didn't we rise up three years ago when they started taking our guns away? Why didn't we rise up in righteous fury and drag these arrogant aliens into the streets and cut their throats then? My name is J.M. Berger. I study extremism with a special focus on propaganda. The author of the Turner Diaries, William Pierce, was a, a rocket scientist. He, he was a physicist, and he slowly became obsessed with issues of race. It focuses a lot on explaining the reasons for terrorism. What the Turner Diaries really is is a template for action and a call to take action. The Turner Diaries presents a kind of dystopian future in which all white men are disarmed by the U.S. government, which has been taken over by people of color, Jewish people, queer people, and liberals alike. He even discovers a church where black people have been eating the flesh of whites. But instead of venerating a terroristic group like the Ku Klux Klan, the Turner Diaries gave readers a sympathetic lone wolf terrorist who helps orchestrate a violent overthrow of the U.S. government. But this novel points to a much more extreme conclusion than the rebirth of the KKK, a total extermination of all non-white people, Jewish people, queer people, you name it, and of course, their liberal allies. When the first black president, Barack Obama, was elected in 2008, America again saw a notable surge in this right-wing terrorism, including two foiled assassination attempts. Stormfront, the most famous neo-Nazi website, saw 32,000 new users within the first three months after his inauguration, doubling the new memberships from the year before. From the anger around his presidency, a new mess of mostly young white men began forming an online community known now as the alt-right. This new movement would be then set on fire by a new kind of presidential candidate, one who was ready to make America great again, ready to go back in time to when exactly. The history we've seen here proves, unsurprisingly, that America was only ever great for those at the top. And it seems that many times during pivotal moments in the civil rights movement, those at the top of our racial hierarchy have felt a kind of supreme privilege slipping away. A kind of equality that terrifies, that creates fevered conspiracy theories that last to this day of a kind of power structure, of a kind of America reversed. In the last few years, we've seen several far-right-wing attacks that seem to have links to this new alt-right, to neo-Nazi and white supremacist ideologies that have been around since the beginning of America. Though different groups within the alt-right do gather at rallies, we've also seen an increase in lone wolf violence of radicalized young white men between the ages of 17 and 30. This last summer, we saw 20 people killed in El Paso inside a packed Walmart by a 21-year-old white man who wrote an anti-immigrant manifesto attempting to combat an apparent invasion of illegal immigrants, the same language used by Trump not long before the shooting. The president didn't really take the time to condemn white supremacy, but he did condemn the glorification of violence in our culture. The Tree of Life shooting targeted Jewish people as part of a rise in concurrent anti-Semitic violence we covered extensively in our Illuminati episode. 
11 people were killed during a service at a synagogue in Pittsburgh. Another young, radicalized white supremacist murdered nine black people gathered together in 2015, yelling into the Charleston, South Carolina church, a familiar white supremacist refrain we've heard since the days of slavery. Quote, I have to do it. You rape our women and you're taking over our country and you have to go. In a deeply heartbreaking statement, this same man told authorities that he, quote, almost didn't go through with it because they were so nice to him. Despite all of this, he was not labeled a terrorist by the Department of Justice. This is because there are no official laws on the books about domestic terrorism. These political extremists who commit violence are instead indicted on hate crimes and murder, sometimes also charged with things like using weapons of mass destruction. We also continue to see iterations of radical Islamic terrorism and still feel the echoes of the 3,000 lost in the 9-11 attacks. We had the Boston bombing that killed five and the targeting of queer people at the Pulse nightclub shooting that killed 53. Left-wing violence has also occurred, with Republican members of Congress targeted at a baseball game by an anti-Trump, pro-Bernie radical who shot and injured six people. Our lives matter! Our lives matter! The FBI continuously investigates Black Lives Matter, referring to them as Black identity extremists. Like Intel Pro before it, the FBI's domestic counterterrorism work has largely focused on this group. Given that white supremacy is well-documented, well-researched movements such as the neo-Nazis, the Ku Klux Klan, etc., are they white identity extremists? I didn't follow that question, please, again. Um, is there a term or a report on white identity extremists? You mentioned you were familiar with black people who identify with their racial identity. Yes, but it's not coming to me at this moment. Not coming to you? The Black Lives Matter hashtag began circulating on social media after the 2012 death of unarmed black teenager Trayvon Martin at the hands of self-appointed community watchman George Zimmerman. The movement continued to grow as the news reported on black deaths at the hands of white police officers, Eric Garner, Freddie Gray, Philandro Castile, and other unarmed black youth and adults. The Black Lives Matter movement, like the Black Panther Party before them, seeks to address police killings of black people, as well as police racial profiling, poverty, and other forms of inequality. After the acquittal of the white officer who shot and killed teenager Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, riots burned on the news as we saw looting and destruction of property. In response to the reasons behind these riots, the Department of Justice looked into statistics in the Ferguson Police Department and found that police were, quote, twice as likely to arrest African-Americans during traffic stops than they were whites. And the DOJ also stated that they found more evidence of police discrimination. Despite this evidence that Black Lives Matter has legitimate grievances, it was quickly labeled a terrorist organization by Bill O'Reilly and Fox News, who would also label the movement as, quote, garbage, an extreme group like the Ku Klux Klan. Talk about false equivalency. By comparing the mission statements of the historical KKK and the Black Panthers, we can see a pretty clear difference in their movements. 
The Klan's goal was to quote, maintain forever the God-given supremacy of the white race. The last point of the Black Panther's 10-point mission statement for Black Americans said simply, quote, We want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. The Black Panthers chose their name because wild panthers never strike first. But, as co-founder Huey Newton once put it, quote, If the aggressor strikes first, then he'll attack. More after this. If you listen to our show, you've heard me muse about the Great Courses Plus, the streaming video and audio service that gives you the freedom to learn about virtually any topic. And not just the basics, you get to truly master it. You learn from unique perspectives from engaging experts, and there's unlimited access to thousands of these lectures on topics like great mythologies of the world, cultural traditions, travel photography, or Mediterranean cooking. Right now, I'm recommending the course Your Deceptive Mind, a Scientific Guide to Critical Thinking Skills. If you listen to our show, I know you're probably fascinated with the human brain and how we construct our own sense of reality, how we process information and take in misinformation, and then how we can learn to be better and stronger critical thinkers. I think that's something we can all support. For a limited time only, they're offering my listeners an entire month for free. But to start your free month, you need to sign up today using my exclusive URL. So sign up now at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash AH. So if you want access to unlimited knowledge, head over to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash AH. I cannot recommend it enough. And now back to the show. Known white supremacist Richard Spencer was the celebrity guest star of the Unite the Right rally that took place in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017 with a goal of bringing together those on the far right for further political influence. Spencer actually called attention to America's long reign of what he decided was justified terror. Quote, It was an open country for Europeans who confronted people who were radically different than they were. And that confrontation, I'll be honest, was terrible. It was bloody and violent. But we conquered this continent. And whether it's nice to say that or not, we won. And we got to define what America means. We got to define what this continent means. America, at the end of the day, belongs to white men. Spencer was notoriously punched in the face by an Antifa member. For those who don't know, Antifa is a shortened version of anti-fascist, and iterations of this particular group have been active since at least the late 1980s, originally hanging out in the skinhead punk scene, actively working to remove white supremacists from the shows and to keep them from recruiting new members. We go where they go was the motto of early Antifa, vowing to confront and drive out far-right extremists. Back in 2002, the group infiltrated and broke up a speech by a member of a white supremacist organization called the World Church of the Creator, leading to an all-out brawl that saw 25 people arrested. More after this. 
You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American can hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box that's code american hysteria 50 at factormeals.com/americanhysteria50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active check out factor today and now back to the show President Trump tweeted during a recent confrontation in Portland between the offshoot of the alt-right known as the Proud Boys and those protesting their rally, Antifa, quote, Major consideration is being given to naming Antifa an organization of terror. It's true that there were fights coming from both the left and the right, and I saw Antifa breaking windows of the Proud Boys bus. But Trump has yet to formally declare right-wing extremists as terrorists, too, though he has offered lukewarm condemnation of some of their actions. Perhaps by drawing attention to far-right terrorism, Trump has a lot to lose. We certainly know that at times Trump has had the full support of organizations like the KKK, with the former Grand Wizard, David Duke, speaking of his support for Trump during the 2016 election, telling his fans that voting for anyone besides Trump, quote, is really treason to your heritage. As we see white supremacist violence unfold on the news, Trump continues to ramp up rhetoric and policy around the threat of Islamic terrorism, creating an outright travel ban of Muslim countries considered to be a terrorist threat while also drawing attention to terrorists who slip through our southern border, hidden among the apparent invasion of illegal immigrants. Far-left violence has dragged notably behind since the 1970s, accounting for much less than its far-right opponents. The Southern Poverty Law Center found that almost two-thirds of terrorist acts in 2017 were tied to a far-right agenda. The last third was split between Islamic extremism and far-left violence. But as we often note on American Hysteria, it's important to put these attacks into context to keep us from feeling some of that terror. The chance of being killed by any kind of terrorist, foreign or domestic, ranges from 1 in 33 million to 1 in 330 million. But those numbers don't mean anything to those who are directly affected, which most often are black people and other people of color, along with Jewish and Muslim people. Those who also have to bear the reality of the rise in hate crimes since this administration took office. What terrorism wants more than destruction and death is our undivided attention. 
In the case of the Weather Underground and the Black Panthers, they wanted to be seen taking action against a racist state and an illegal and brutal U.S.-led war. They wanted to let the oppressors know that they weren't going to peacefully accept the status quo. The KKK wanted to be seen, too, threatening the rise of black civil rights to make a statement in favor of the continued reign of undisturbed white power. And now, the alt-right certainly wants to be seen as the organizer of the recent Portland Proud Boy rally stated bluntly, quote, We wanted national attention and we got it. Mission success. It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Just as Richard Spencer was clocked in the face, he was musing about Pepe the Frog. Remember him? It was a sickening and bizarre meme that took many forms, with this cartoon frog often adorned with a Make America Great Again hat, or a Nazi uniform, or just turning into a frog version of Trump. The cartoonist behind the original Pepe cartoon, however, condemned the alt-right and then officially killed his beloved frog so that he could not be used for the alt-right's agenda. In the age of the infinitude of this faceless internet, different corners of it are awash with a cascade of nerdish propagandic memes that espouse millions of racist, anti-Semitic, sexist, anti-queer sentiments to a new generation of young white men who spend much of their time in echo chamber message boards where they cultivate hate for people they perceive to have more social capital than them, where they complain violently about the pretty women who won't have sex with them, the feminazis and please excuse my language here, but I think it's important to say it, the fags, the dykes, and the trannies who are ruining the long tradition of masculine supremacy as well as infringing, apparently, on their free speech. And, of course, the social justice warriors who are rising to take over the government and do God knows what to these good white patriots. After, of course, they take all their guns. These bizarre alt-right memes feel similar to the odd fantasy world that the KKK created so that they could be bigger than themselves. Ogres and dragons, wizards and nighthawks, a full room of terrors, ghosts of a dark and cruel dream that still haunt our riotous streets. I want to return for a second to the Unite the Right rally that happened in Charlottesville, Virginia, the town where I went to grad school from 2011 to 2013. I was once arrested during a protest for Occupy Charlottesville, a branch of the Occupy Wall Street movement, which, despite its largely peaceful nature, was still investigated by the U.S. government as a potential terrorist threat. My friends and I used to spend so much time in the same park that neo-Nazis gathered in that horrible day. Not only that, I actually used to know the man who organized the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, though I doubt he would remember me. He frequented our camp and considered himself part of Occupy Charlottesville. This man was literally run out of our camp by a group of occupiers for his inappropriate and abusive language toward women. I heard he then tried to enter the local poetry scene and again, due to his behavior, was not welcomed with open arms. 
I don't know what happened to him after that, but I imagine he felt dejected. And I imagine he found some kind of sympathy within the alt-right. And he found an opportunity to stay staunchly himself. To avoid the difficult internal work of examining white privilege and toxic masculinity, foreign tasks suddenly demanded by a rising and vocal counterculture, ready to battle, often online, the long-term and institutionalized racism, sexism, homophobia, and other forms of injustice. This man flipped to the right, but not only did he flip, he went to an extreme. He gathered his fellow far-right-wingers together to fight against this apparent replacement of the white race, this war on white men, a fevered nightmare of political correctness and identity politics that they just couldn't wake up from. Unite the Right said that they were there in the park to protest the removal of a Confederate monument of Robert E. Lee, an iron statue that once stared down at me and my friends, a monument to the lost cause of the Civil War, a war based entirely on pro-slavery ideals. These protesters were fervently protecting this monument, and Trump thought that was great, and he wondered where this political correctness would stop. He didn't seem to mind that the sentiment proudly displayed in the dead center of a happy park was a man that led the charge to stop black people from becoming free. We know how that rally ended, and I'll never forget how my phone buzzed over and over with text messages before the news reached the internet. Friends were telling me about what happened, that a neo-Nazi had driven his car into a crowd of people. I was stunned into thinking it had to be a mistake, but it wasn't. Soon, we were waiting for a presidential response, as we always do during times of tragedy, and this is what we got. You had a group on one side and you had a group on the other and they came at each other with clubs and it was vicious and it was horrible and it was a horrible thing to watch. But there is another side. There was a group on this side, you can call them the left, you've just called them the left, that came violently attacking the other group. So you can say what you want, but that's the way it is. So you said there was hatred, there was violence on both sides. Uh, are well, I do think there's blame, yes. I think there's blame on both sides. You not started person. this. They should, they, should they should have been Charlottesville. Excuse me. To protest. And you had some very bad people in that group. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. Trump famously blamed both sides for the death of Heather Heyer, who was killed in Charlottesville when a young white supremacist drove his car into a crowd of counter-protesters. This blaming of both sides is nothing new. In fact, it was a familiar refrain throughout the violence surrounding desegregation. President Dwight D. Eisenhower called out, quote, extremists on both sides, while black kids were terrorized by white adults while trying to go to school. By extremists, Eisenhower clarified that he meant the KKK and the NAACP. Talk about false equivalency. Just like the film Birth of a Nation, just like the novel The Turner Diaries, just like the imagined New York conspiracy of 1741, white nationalists have long sought out a victim narrative in order to justify their violence. Because what if one day their own class might experience the kind of pain that others have been experiencing since the beginning of America? It seems that the alt-right and all white supremacist organizations before them experience a kind of deep terror at the potential loss of this racial hierarchy. 
Psychologists who study extremist movements have found that domestic terrorists feel angry, alienated, and disenfranchised, and believe that current political involvement does not give them the power to affect the change they want to. The man who began Unite the Right stated that the white race was under attack. So did Richard Spencer, so did the KKK, so did Timothy McVeigh, and so do these extremist, young, white, message board-inspired men who commit the mass murders we've been seeing in the news for the last several years. The activists of Black Lives Matter feel disenfranchised, too, victims of not only a long campaign of targeted white supremacist violence and murder, but also state-sanctioned laws that have prevented their most basic civil rights. And of course, we still experience the harsh echoes of the past, from the slave catchers of the Deep South all the way up through the Department of Justice investigation into the Ferguson Police Department. Power, privilege, and oppression are passed down through our generations, only ever disturbed by the activist movements, whether violent or not, that envision a new kind of America. As we've seen, as sad as it is, our government has always favored the far right, has always been lenient on white supremacy, and disproportionately tough on those who desire to tear it down. But I also think it's important to point out that the lower classes of the U.S., which includes poor white people, have been continuously disenfranchised by our tumultuous economy, by a government that's always favored the rich. But that's a problem to address with the government itself and with corporate America, the way Occupy Wall Street once trumpeted. It's not those seeking to balance the scales of justice and sustenance and safety and the pursuit of happiness that are the enemy. But far-right extremists have been fighting since the beginnings to ruthlessly uphold the supremacy of the white race in America, those who have inherited this white privilege, a reality that many white people throughout our history have sloppily understood, as those of the left now do, as the Weather Underground and John Brown before them called out all those years ago. But it was the black leaders of slave revolts, the Black Panthers, and now Black Lives Matter, as well as communities of color in general, that feel the daily brutal truth of it all. One of the main reasons that Occupy Wall Street fell apart was that it represented a microcosm of the problems of the United States, and many protesters still felt racism and sexism and homophobia even among those who claimed to be allies, those who would call for unity without doing the hard work of what unity really means. And just like the relationship between the Weather Underground and the Black Panthers, Antifa, a largely white movement, and Black Lives Matter don't always see eye to eye. Oftentimes, when Antifa showed up to Black Lives Matter rallies, they escalated the conflict, and black leaders were concerned, just like Fred Hampton was before them, that the government and police response would disproportionately affect the black activists and their communities. A Black Lives Matter organizer named Nino Brown told NBC News that, quote, although we don't agree with Antifa's tactics and strategy and adventurism, we respect their willingness to put their bodies on the line to fight fascists. Martin Luther King Jr. is the black activist most darling to white America for his nonviolent approach to the battle for civil rights. But Martin Luther was not just this simple, peaceful minister. He had another side to him, a side that sympathized with the riots and outbursts of violence against white supremacy. I'll leave it to Martin Luther King to sum up this bright burning chaos that I've tried my best to organize here.
But at the same time, it is as necessary for me to be as vigorous in condemning the conditions which cause persons to feel that they must engage in riotous activities as it is for me to condemn riots. I think America must see that riots do not develop out of thin air. Certain conditions continue to exist in our society which must be condemned as vigorously as we condemn riots. But in the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. What is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. It has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. And it has failed to hear that large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice, equality, and humanity. And so in a real sense, our nation's summers of riots are caused by our nation's winters of delay. And as long as America postpones justice, we stand in the position of having these recurrences of violence and riots over and over again. Social justice and progress are the absolute guarantors of riot prevention. I want to start a new tradition at American Hysteria of taking actions. And so for each episode, I want to highlight a nonprofit that relates to what we've been talking about. This week, it's the People's Kitchen Collective out of Oakland, California, an organization inspired by the Black Panthers' free breakfast program. The People's Kitchen Collective offers their own free breakfast program that serves hundreds of people free, hot, nutritious, and delicious breakfast in Oakland. If you're able and would like to support this nonprofit, please head to peopleskitchencollective.com. We'll also put a link to their website in our show notes. From Skylark, this was American Hysteria. Next time on the show, it's our season finale. Can you believe it? We're going to cover mind control and brainwashing, as well as how much actual agency we have over our own thoughts. And I'll even share my personal experience with a modern self-help cult. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Assistant produced by Derek Smith. Produced and edited by Clear Commo Studios with research assisted by Riley Smith and recorded on location at Densmore Studios in Seattle. A special thanks again to Miranda Ziegler for all of her help on both of these episodes. I feel like making this episode nearly destroyed me, so thanks for sticking with me through this journey. I hope in some small way it helped illuminate the present moment and gave some insight into where this nation could go for better or for worse. Until next time, I really do hope that you have a great week. And if you can, please donate to the People's Kitchen Collective, an organization that no matter what you believe, I think we can all agree is doing good work. May we all follow our hearts this week and always to fight with love and righteous anger for the world we dream to see.
The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.